This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, welcome to episode three. And I apologize, my voice is just recovering from being sick for a little while, but we're going to tough this one out. Today, we're going to talk about movies, but it's really about civility and understanding that people don't always agree and basic right and wrong. Look, we all bitch about politicians, and if you vote, which every last one of us better be, you can and should fire politicians. When politicians do something that denies someone's rights and income and a fair chance, those bastards need to lose their jobs. They're hurting other people. But that's way different than your annoying co-worker who spouts off about shit they don't understand and falls for obvious foolishness on criminally biased non-mainstream media. You don't have to like that guy. You can even sit there in the break room and say, Frank, shut up and eat your bologna. But if you deny that individual private citizen a living just because you don't agree with them, then you're being the asshole. We're never going to all agree, but it doesn't give you the right to take food out of someone's mouth. So on to the juicy history behind this. This is a sordid tale of not at all liberal Hollywood. It's the story of blacklisting and constitutional freedoms and a handful of heroes and lots of villains. It's about stopping people guilty of no crime at all from earning a living in their field of expertise. And I'm not talking about actors who develop a reputation for being wackadoodles like Gary Busey or just pure ass licks like Chevy Chase. That's simply a majority of producers deciding they want their workday to go smoothly so they can get back to a double martini in their side piece. This is the real toxic shit. To understand the context of this story, we've got to start with the studio system. Think of old-time Hollywood as baseball or football before free agency. As an actor or writer, you signed a contract with a given studio, like MGM, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and that's who you worked for. Sometimes the studio loaned their talent to their buddies at other studios, but you sure as hell never saw any of that money. You were their property until the contract expired. And that even included who you dated in public, since it was all about the image and the gossip columnist and the fan magazines. Those were the real people with power, the studio heads. That has never changed. The reason Harvey Weinstein got away with rape and assault for decades sure ain't because he's smooth and irresistibly sexy. It's because he had the power to make people a star. And because people come to Hollywood wanting to be big stars, thousands of them put up with the studio system. Another power of the studio system was that if you didn't go along, the studios had enforcers. They'd send people around to rough up the troublemakers who threatened a star's pristine image. They owned cops and politicians. They'd pay undesirable sex partners to go away and turn unwanted bastard babies into adoptees. And they tried, at least a little, to get their studio employees to at least act true blue. But with the feds, that didn't work. 
The first time the government came down on Hollywood was in the 1930s with the Hayes Code for Moral Decency. If you check out some of the movies before 1934, you find all kinds of slinky negligees and people rubbing against each other, so the studio self-imposed, under political pressure, this promise to prohibit graphic violence, nudity, profanity, and any sexual persuasion other than the man on top well off screen. It even dialed back cartoons like Betty Boop. The Hayes Code is why Rob and Laura Petrie slept in separate beds. A little later in the 1930s, and we'll eventually spend an episode on this concept, Congress formed the House Un-American Activities Committee. They were initially all over the map, and even included fascists among their targets. Pity that they couldn't have waited 90 years, because their targets would have been super easy to spot sitting right on the other side of the aisle. That 1930s UAC was very clearly anti-Semitic and even cooked up a plan for Japanese internment camps. But after World War II, when common American wisdom was that we should be fighting the Russians to stop the spread of communism, things changed. Their focus was all on one thing, and it eventually led to HUAC and the righties in government saying that many movies were pro-communist. Bottom line, they used the cover of the Cold War to attack those who did not agree with them. Now, don't conflate HUAC with McCarthy. This lasted longer, and it did more damage. HUAC would call people before them, by subpoena, so they had no choice. And that was back when a congressional subpoena actually meant something, and people believed in the law. And they would swear them in, and then ask, are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Well, the fact is, being a member of the Communist Party is not illegal. The Nazis marching through Charlottesville was disgusting, but not initially illegal, as long as they had a permit and then didn't, you know, like, kill people by running them over with your car. Just like burning the flag, you probably don't want to lead with that when you meet your girlfriend's parents. But it ain't against the law. Socialism in the U.S. had its roots in the labor movement with the working people just trying to keep a little slice of the pie. It had been reinforced when most Americans backed the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War against the fascists and their Nazi backers. Most everything we do in every level of government today is, by textbook definition, socialist. But the bosses very quickly learned that vilifying the term socialist and later communist and trying to brand all attempts at basic fairness as being somehow subversive to the very fabric of the nation, they could make points with the public. Like in every other industry, when the first unions formed in Hollywood, Screen Actors Guild, Writers Guild, IATSE, the stage workers who were in bed with the mob for a while, and especially a more radical group called the Studio Union, the bosses often decried that as socialism and communism. First of all, I'll state the obvious. Communism and socialism are not the same thing. Communism is much more radical than socialism. And like everything else in government, even idiocy like trickle-down economics, they start out as pure political and economic theory. In the 1840s, Marx and Engels were writing about making the world more equal between the working class and the capitalists who controlled the Industrial Revolution. And that obviously is an entire college course of its own, albeit one band in Florida. All we need to know for this story is that like any other idea of any kind, real-life implementation always jacks things up. 
When you put communism into practice, like the governments of the Soviet Union and China, it instantly becomes a shit show of epic proportions. People who don't go along with the will of the state end up dying by the thousands. And that right there, the complete control by the state to benefit the masses, is why communist has never, ever been a serious consideration in the United States. We Americans prefer our corruption more out in the open. Badoom boom Ha! There were absolutely followers of both socialism and communism in the 1930s in the United States, all across America and in Hollywood. One, socialism, was still politically viable. The Socialist Party got as high as 6% of the popular vote in a presidential election just 20 years earlier. The other one, the commies, were a total fringe group, but still protected by the First Amendment. I mean, in the fight against Hitler, Stalin and those dancing Ruskies, they were America's ally. We were all on the same side. His purges were either not fully known or later on, immediately prior to the war, not completely believed. The Soviets were bringing what could be termed today as influencers, imagine a Kardashian without Botox and a cell phone, over to Moscow and showing them the glories of communism like giant tractors that may or may not run and bakeries with actual bread which was promptly removed the minute they left. In other words, lots of people were duped. Writers were the most activist union in the film industry and the budding television industry. They had the biggest share of Hollywood people who had flirted with communism, or even been party members back in the 20s and early 30s. And for that reason, the writers' hearings were the first target of HUAC. Forget that for most of them, they had tempered their beliefs with the major changes in the world between the 1930s and the end of World War II. HUAC brought their show on the road, and they set up hearings at the Biltmore Hotel in L.A. Five stars at taxpayer expense. Plus, they get to hang out with movie stars. The grandstanders on the HUAC committee were no different than the ones who held 298 hearings about Benghazi. The studio heads... They just wanted this shit to go away. They smelled a loss of profits. So when those hearings started in 1947, there were friendly and unfriendly witnesses. Most of the first people to speak were the studio bosses themselves. Right from the get-go, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers supplied a list of names. In Warner's list, anyone who was a liberal suddenly became a communist. Louis B. Mayer, who was the single most powerful guy in the movie industry as head of MGM... Not so gung-ho. Mayer said the studios can handle it themselves. The final witness in this very first session was Walt Disney. And he said communists were trying to organize his cartoonist, and it was a problem. Man, you can only imagine what kind of wacky left-wing hijinks Mickey and Goofy were getting up to off-screen, right? Oh, a problem. The studio heads were navigating censorship, not fighting it. They wanted the whole thing to just go away, and most were more than willing to compromise for that to happen. Three studio bosses found a pair and stood up to this. Walter Wanger at Columbia, who had previously brought the Marx Brothers to Paramount, by the way, Dor Sherry, who was the head of production at MGM, and Sam Goldwyn, the G in MGM, they flatly objected to firing people over their political views, and they were the voices in the proverbial wilderness because all the other producers agreed to fire some of their top writers as long as it was limited to just the 10. Officially, all the guilds joined producers in cooperating with the committee to bring the communist problem under control. A bunch of people came to the writer's defense, and more about that in a few, 
but it wasn't nearly enough. These 10 writers were fired, and some of them were big names. If you're a movie buff, you can look up their IMDb list, and most of these guys wrote successful movies you know. Dalton Trumbo had already done 30 Seconds Over Tokyo and A Guy Named Joe, which is a real World War II classic with Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn. They remade it in 1989 with Richard Dreyfuss, John Goodman, and Holly Hunter and called it Always. Good flick. Ring Lardner Jr., son of the most famous newspaper writer in the country, had done the scripts for Woman of the Year with Tracy and Hepburn and contributed to the original Star is Born with Janet Gaynor. Edward Dimitrik had written Murder, My Sweet, one of the first times that Philip Marlowe made the big screen, and Dimitrik had already won an Oscar for Crossfire. These were not stoned guys sitting around writing House Party 3. The Hollywood Ten lost their appeals and went to jail for a year. Then they returned to being blacklisted and officially forbidden to work in movies, the thing they'd been doing already for two decades. And it stood at just those ten for three years. Then HUAC reopened hearings in March 1951. More congressmen that needed a PR boost, right? Once again, Hollywood pledged cooperation. But this time, there was no more support network after seeing the ten in jail. No committee to protect the First Amendment. Liberals were no longer offering support. They'd seen the consequences. The Communist Party nationally was virtually destroyed, and its leaders literally were in hiding. Of course, in the broader picture by now, Stalin was a well-known commodity as a murdering lunatic, and the Taft-Hartley bill by Republicans had largely gutted American labor unions. This had become a very one-sided fight. The renewed hearings offered two choices. You take the Fifth Amendment and get fired, or you cooperate. Martin Berkeley, a right-wing writer, gave over 150 names. But it was Eddie Dimitrik who provided a roadmap. Recant your flirtation with communism, publish your apology in the Saturday Evening Post, and name names. He was the only one of the Hollywood Ten that flipped. Name names, and all was forgiven. The entire process was like this anti-First Amendment pyramid scheme, metabolife for cowards. One of the consequences was a stifling of acceptable topics for movies. The types of movies being made were completely changed. No more depictions of working-class struggles against the man. Instead, you get these cheery musicals and biblical epics coming out the ass. After they go to jail, most of the Hollywood Ten writers kept writing and getting paid under pen names. It was an open secret, and I'm talking about Academy Award-winning scripts. The Brave One and Roman Holiday both got Oscars for Dalton Trumbo's scripts under fake names. Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson wrote the screenplay for Bridge on the River Kwai under fake names. When it won a writing Oscar, it was given to the French guy who wrote the book, had nothing to do with the movie, and didn't even speak English. Meanwhile, there was the Kane Mutiny, Rain Tree County, and the Young Lions for Dimitrik under his own name because he had flipped. It was all hypocrisy at its very finest. But the actors couldn't do it because they were on screen, so they just didn't work. HUAC and its allies were totally emboldened. Screw the law. They were going to prosecute you just for believing something different than they did even if you didn't believe it anymore and only believed it 25 years earlier. It's ironic because this is the same group that today holds hearings about how Facebook is trying to silence them. Snowflakes. 
Huack and their pals investigated hundreds, simply as a way of pressuring liberals. The FBI got involved in order to stifle dissent and end any and all defense of the targets of the committee. J. Edgar Hoover had always thought he saw pinko commies everywhere, and that shit had to be stopped at all cost. They even targeted suspect movies. The classic High Noon was billed as one man's story to stand up against overwhelming evil. There was a major outcry against it as an allegorical attack on HUAC and the FBI. That's considered the likely reason that The Greatest Show on Earth got the nod for Best Picture in 1952. So, they name names, I'll name names. Who among the actors and writers got blacklisted the second time around? Here are some that you might recognize. Pete Seeger, Lena Horne, Orson Welles, and Charlie Chaplin. They both just moved out of the United States. Lee Grant, Dashiell Hammett, the guy who created Sam Spade. Paul Robeson, Richard Wright, Langston Hughes. If you were black and liberal, you were all kinds of hosed. Jose Ferrer, John Garfield, Ruth Gordon, that nice little crazy lady from Harold and Maude. Yep, she was blacklisted. Burl Ives, the narrator of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Herschel Bernardi, Gypsy Rose Lee. Somebody uncovered a little too much in her case. Burgess Meredith, that's Rocky's trainer or the Penguin, take your pick. Henry Morgan, Zero Mostel, who was brilliant in The Producers, one of the funniest movies ever made. Dorothy Parker. Artie Shaw, probably my favorite big band leader. Trusted newsman Howard K. Smith. Eddie Albert. Yep, Hooterville had a red. Richard Attenborough. Orson Bean. Harry Belafonte. Kim Hunter. John Ireland. Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee. Francis Farmer, for crying out loud. Electroshock treatment wasn't enough. There were choreographers apparently infusing production numbers with subversive dance steps, according to HUAC. The great playwright Lillian Hellman, Will Gear. Yep, Grandpa Walton was a no-account pinko. Do you begin to understand just how sad and pointless this whole thing was? In all, there were well over 300 people who lost their livelihoods for years. Only about 30 of them were later restored to a full career. Now, I've got to note that the people behind the Red Scare were the same ones fighting civil rights, using the pinko boogeyman as a cover for white supremacy, but we'll revisit that another day. The whole thing just devolved into this exercise of power on the part of the committee, ego rubbing. You can almost picture the members of the committee in a dark bathroom with a loyalty oath and a Kleenex. And the people who could have stepped in and shown some courage and shut this shit down simply did not, at least not for a long damn time. It's looking the other way when wrongs are committed. It's an abandonment of what you know is right and wrong since your mama raised you up. Sometimes it was just the mention of a name. You may or may not know the name Lionel Stander. He was a character actor. Personally, I remember him as Max, the driver on the 1980s TV show Heart to Heart. In 1951, the HUAC lawyer, during a committee hearing, asked an actor if he knew Lionel Stander. The actor said he did, but he knew nothing about his politics. That was it. There was no follow-up, no insinuation, but Stander's work dried up overnight. From booking 10 TV roles in the previous three months, he went to nothing. Eventually, Stander himself was finally called, and after pledging to happily help find people who were subverting American ideals, 
This is what he said under oath. Quote, I know a group of fanatics who are desperately trying to undermine the Constitution of the United States by depriving artists and others of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without due process of law. I can tell names and cite instances, and I am one of the first victims of it. This is a group of ex-fascists and America firsters and anti-Semites, people who hate everybody, including Negroes, minority groups, and most likely themselves. These people are engaged in a conspiracy outside all legal processes to undermine the very fundamental American concepts upon which our entire system of democracy exists. End quote. That was Max the chauffeur. There were definitely turncoats. It disturbed some of them, but seemingly not others. But they still did it. Edward G. Robinson denied being a communist to the committee in 1950, but his work dried up anyway. So two years later, he arranged to appear before the committee again, and this time he confessed. Though he did not name names, his name had now been cleared by humiliating and debasing himself in public, and he started booking movies again. What had Robinson exactly done in the first place? He was involved in anti-Nazi and pro-war organizations at a time when the Soviets were our ally. Orson Welles kind of summed it all up. He said, quote, Friends informed on friends not to save their lives, but to save their swimming pools. Elia Kazan was one of the top directors in Hollywood, coming off Streetcar Named Desire and Gentleman's Agreement, and another guy who had attended Communist Party meetings years earlier. When 20th Century Fox said, go make HUAC happy or you don't get to make your next picture, Kazan named names. Happy to do it. The day after his testimony before the committee, he went one better. Paid for an ad himself in the New York Times defending what he did and urging other liberals to speak out. It didn't cost him work like it did for the eight names he gave to the committee. And just two years later, his masterpiece came out. On the Waterfront won eight Academy Awards, including... Best Director. The whole movie is gritty and brilliant. Every last ounce of performance wrung out of those actors. But it's also a blatant defense of Kazan informing. Brando's character, bloodied, saying, I'm glad of what I done. That's Kazan. But whether intended or not, you can also hear the consequences of this self-righteous ass clown in Lee J. Cobb's character. Different names, but it might as well be Seeger, you don't work. Hammett, you don't work. In real life, true to form, when Lee J. Cobb got called before the committee, and he did, he named names. Cobb, you don't work. Arthur Miller, the great playwright who gave us Death of a Salesman in The Crucible and got his heart surgically extracted by Marilyn Monroe, was friends with Kazan right up until the informing. And Miller had a terrific quote. The public exposure of a bunch of actors who had not been politically connected for years would never push one red Chinaman out of the Forbidden City or a single Russian out of Warsaw or Budapest. So, as much as anyone in this story, Elia Kazan is the perfect example of someone whose career mattered to him more than his principles or other people's lives. He was defiant about that until he died. He made some great pictures, and he just couldn't be bothered with personal ethics. I mentioned earlier that there were some people who defended the Hollywood 10 back at the end of the 40s. So who were they? Lucille Ball was definitely one of them. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were especially vocal. 
Judy Garland, Sterling Hayden, Henry Fonda, who interestingly was best friend of the very conservative Jimmy Stewart, who proved that, yes, politics should not define us. Fonda and Stewart actually came to blows over politics once, with Fonda allegedly kicking Stewart's ass a little bit, but they remained best pals for 50 years. Now, I said earlier when the second wave started, those earlier defenders changed their tunes. Lucille Ball, who had stood up to the righties beforehand, was now firmly the biggest Hollywood star in America. Over half of the TV sets in the country were tuned to I Love Lucy every week. And I gotta say, pure honesty, I am not a fan of Lucy on screen. I think she overacts way too much and that Fred Mertz was the funniest thing on the program. Yeah, I know, Star Trek, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, in 1936, Lucy had registered to vote as a communist. And yes, like I said, it was a political party and you could do that. She had even held an organizing meeting at her apartment. Well, in 1953, now that she's this enormous star, she volunteered to go before the committee, and she said she only wrote down communists to please her socialist grandfather, and she promised everyone she was not a red. Just like in Aaron Sorkin's movie, a headline in L.A. called her a commie, and Desi Arnaz went out and spoke to the live studio audience and assured everyone that his wife was true blue American. But what really helped her was advertisers holding the line behind her because she was the biggest box office draw. And then President Eisenhower invited Lucy and Desi to his birthday party at the White House. Lucy was the one person who was too popular for the radical right to fuck with. So, who were the true heroes in this? There are not many, since it took so damn long to get there. But there were some major stars who finally put morality and the Constitution on the line. In the late 50s, some people in Hollywood, people with ethics, even though they were ethics delayed, had seen enough. Or maybe it was just that the national tide was turning enough to give them a little bit of cover. Alfred Hitchcock publicly hired a blacklisted actor to be an associate producer on his TV show in 1957. He was the first. In 1960, Otto Preminger openly brought Dalton Trumbo back as a writer on Exodus, under his own name. As depicted in the movie Trumbo, which you have got to see if you haven't already, Kirk Douglas fought to have Trumbo and Howard Fast use their own names in Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Finally, there was this great humorist, writer, and radio storyteller, John Henry Falk, who won a $3.5 million lawsuit against a group that had dragged his name through the mud as a communist. Falk was an early supporter of civil rights and the ACLU, and again, I'll mention the incredibly close ties between anti-communists and segregationists. The lawyer for the group that Falk sued and beat was Roy Cohn, also Joe McCarthy's lawyer and mentor of both Donald Trump and Bobby Kennedy. And yep, that's an episode. Hollywood has always had true right-wing believers. Top of any list is John Wayne. And let's be clear. I love a good old-fashioned, simple Western shoot-'em-up. They are fun. And spare me any whines about depictions of American Indians and the lack of minorities. It's the movies, for fuck's sake, not a court of law. Count the flaws if that makes you happy, but that's like trying to analyze a joke. You're missing the entire point. Shame on you. They might not all succeed, but movies are created to be seen as a whole, a work of art in storytelling. 
writing, acting, directing, musical score, and especially cinematography. And by any movie-watching standard, Red River, for example, is a masterpiece. Same goes for The Searchers, The Cowboys, El Dorado, and Liberty Valance. Wayne's character in The Searchers, Ethan Edwards, was called by Martin Scorsese a poet of hatred. It's a great performance of a richly bad character. For all of his flag-waving simplicity, John Wayne is still a bit of a complicated person. He worked incredibly hard. He made 169 feature-length movies. Early on, he took advice from Wyatt Earp, no shit, and silent cowboy stars like Tom Mix to develop his screen persona. That's how far back John Wayne went. He copied that swaggering walk of his from a famous stuntman named Yakima Knut, the same guy who was Rhett Butler's stunt double in Gone with the Wind, by the way. Wayne was a registered Democrat and FDR supporter until he felt that becoming a Republican would do him more good in Hollywood. During World War II, when every able-bodied man in America under 45 went into the military, John Wayne ignored his draft notice. He later said, and this is a quote, I didn't feel I could go in as a private. I thought I could do more good going around on tours and things, end quote. And here's what he said about the young recruits who were dying for their country. Again, a quote. They took their sweethearts to Saturday matinees and held hands over a Wayne Western. So I wore a big hat and thought it was better than taking any position in the military, end quote. Yeah, I'm sure that big hat was a major comfort to teenage boys pinned down in a foxhole on Guadalcanal. John Ford, Wayne's mentor and a genius director, had gone into combat zones as a 50-year-old to make Army newsreels, and he ragged on Wayne often about being a draft dodger. When they were shooting They Were Expendable in 1945, Ford yelled in front of everybody, Duke, can't you manage a salute that at least looks like you've been in the service? John Wayne was the co-founder and four-term president of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. Anytime you hear things like American ideals or family values, start running. Few terms represent shit piled any higher than that meaningless tripe. The Motion Picture Alliance's statement of principles had American way of life in its first sentence. Aside from the fact that American way of life is about as subjective a concept as you can get, it generally means somebody wants to impose their idea of what that means on everybody else. American way of life was also a catchphrase that segregationists used repeatedly. And while I am absolutely not saying these people were all racist, even in the context of their times, it still should give you some slight pause whenever you hear the phrase American way of life. Two final points. The alliance was founded in 1944 when the U.S. was still allied with the Soviet communists, and they initially included fascist and all totalitarian-minded groups as their targets. And they refused to permit such people, quote, to pervert this powerful medium into an instrument for dissemination of un-American ideas and beliefs, end quote. They also said they would fight efforts to, and again I quote, divert the loyalty of the screen from the free America that gave it birth. Well, the French invented motion pictures and developed the first important film industry, not the Americans, you arrogant ass nozzles. But the real elephant in the ointment for all this horseshit was that nobody was trying to do any of this. 
Their enemies were simply people who had different belief systems than they did and wanted to exercise their First Amendment rights to say so. There was no grand plot. It's just like the radical right today trying to solve problems like voter fraud that just don't exist. I mentioned a second ago about movies being art, and that is totally true, except when it isn't. Sometimes a feature can also be pure propaganda, especially in the 1950s. Thankfully, it doesn't happen often because making a movie is damned expensive, but it happened several times back then because the studios were scared shitless over this communist witch hunt. And that, Trumpanistas, is what a witch hunt is, by the way. Wayne was one of a handful of Hollywood actors who had some real clout by virtue of his box office success. And here's a bit of trivia, by the way. John Wayne allegedly opened a few doors for a young actor named Tom Selleck because they were in the same fraternity at USC, and Selleck supposedly slipped him the grip at a party. Anyway, Wayne had enough power to raise money and make his own movies. He made one incredibly forgettable flick where he played Big Jim McLean, hunting down commies and Hawaii's labor unions. It's a twofer. Attack commies and unions. The Duke was also an active enforcer of HUAC belief in real life. And again, that's the key word. Belief. There were tons of people I don't agree with. I can argue with them. I don't have to respect those beliefs. I don't even have to respect those people. But what I should not be able to do is to throw them in jail for those beliefs or permanently deny them a private sector livelihood just because they don't vote the way I do. And that's exactly what these blacklisters and the Motion Picture Alliance were doing. Oddly, almost all of the blacklisters talked about doing what they're doing for America and family values. John Wayne was a great family man. Just ask his third wife. And let me stress, that's a joke. I don't care at all about people's private life as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But I do so hate a hypocrite. I will say, as an aside, Dalton Trumbo was only married the one time, and his three kids seemed to have been good folks. One of his daughters even dated Steve Martin. We're talking about the blacklist era, but I kind of feel like I should add in a little John Wayne postscript here. These were John Wayne's true beliefs, and he did not try to hide from them. On the other hand, he clearly did not want to learn and grow with the times either. In 1971, he gave an infamous interview to Playboy, in which he said Americans were right to take all the land from the Indians, that the U.S. shouldn't have welfare programs, and that he believed in white supremacy until blacks were sufficiently educated. That was John Wayne in 1971, not 1871, in case you misheard. Wayne also once told Kirk Douglas that he should never have played a, quote, weak queer, like Vincent Van Gogh. He said in another interview that the movies treated the American Indians too well when we all knew that they were, quote, savage, treacherous, competent warriors with little pity, end quote. This was John Wayne's reality. And it has not held up well. It didn't even hold up well while he was alive in some cases. But at the same time, John Wayne's third wife that I mentioned, married for the last 20-plus years of his life, was a Latina. It was also documented that Wayne jumped on people on sets for using the N-word. So the guy was not entirely a caricature either. Make no mistake, John Wayne thought himself, without a doubt, to be a moral, good American just as all the people who feel like he does still think of themselves. But compare that to Jimmy Stewart, 
a contemporary movie star wanes, a fellow hardline conservative, staunch Presbyterian, supporter of the Vietnam War, Wayne's co-star in Liberty Valance and The Shootist, the final film for both men. Where they diverged, first, Stewart joined the Army Air Corps during World War II and remained a general in the Air Force Reserve. And while Stewart was on record as saying he thought communists were behind some unrest in the U.S., and a threat to Hollywood, he did not join the crusade to name names. Overall, Stewart made better movies, too. Come on, it's a wonderful life. There was a line that even John Wayne wouldn't cross. He joined the John Birch Society in 1960, one of the true loony bin organizations of all time, but he quit after they denounced fluoridation of public water as a communist plot to pacify the masses, evidently confusing fluoride and Xanax. For the record, studies in the late 1980s showed the Soviets did not put fluoride in their own water. And if you think about it, there are not a lot of books on great Russian dentistry either. One last John Wayne note, because people are complicated and their legacies can be amazingly messy. Here's the epitaph on his grave marker. Tomorrow is the most important thing in life. Comes into us at midnight, very clean. It's perfect when it arrives, and it puts itself in our hands. It hopes we've learned something from yesterday. So where does that beautiful quote come from? John Wayne said it during that same 1971 Playboy interview. So who else in Hollywood of the 50s were the intolerant motion picture alliance types who were committed to conservatism first, last, and only? Well, there's the aforementioned Walt Disney, the dude who gave us the most lovable cartoon animals of all time, and ironically, the same guy who started the empire that Munchkin DeSantis attacks weekly as being woke. It's freaking mind-blowing that Minnie Mouse ever wore a pink dress, isn't it? That whiskered little commie minx. There was Ginger Rogers. She was a Motion Picture Alliance member, tap-dancing over people's First Amendment rights. Hedda Hopper, The gossip columnist and mother of Perry Mason's Paul Drake was one of the primary leaders of the alliance. Sadly, there's some actors I really like that bought into the Motion Picture Alliance. Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, Ward Bond, Walter Brennan, and Barbara Stanwyck. Several early directors who were frankly already cranky old men by the 1950s. Cecil B. DeMille, Victor Fleming, and King Vidor were members. Robert Taylor and Dick Powell. And last and certainly least that overrated, worthless purveyor of selfish fascism, Ayn Rand, was not only a member, but wrote their publicity material. But out of all of them, the one guy who got the most long-term mileage from the Motion Picture Alliance and anti-communism was Ronald Reagan. He traded on being a right-wing red hunter for years. In 1980, While he was running for president for the second time, Reagan was still rambling on about how the producers and HUAC were right. In an interview, he said that the industry had responded to communist domination of several unions and communist efforts to take over the industry, which was utter bullshit. Reagan was the president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time, for Christ's sake. He even led SAG out on strike. Reagan said in the 80s that these commies had gotten into positions where they could destroy careers, and they did destroy them. This is Reagan's quote, There was no blacklist in Hollywood. The blacklist in Hollywood, if there was one, was provided by the communists. In other words, Reagan was saying they were attacking each other, and that the radical righties like him were blameless, 
And that is a flat-ass lie. It's like the schoolyard bully grabbing your wrist and then saying, Why are you punching yourself in the face, dude? But for the man who gave us a Ron Contra and fictional welfare queens driving Cadillacs, what do you expect? If you like movies, let me mention as we wrap up some of the films written by the Hollywood Ten after they were let back to work under their own names. Papillon, M.A.S.H., Born Free, Cry the Beloved Country, The Way We Were, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, and fittingly, Town Without Pity. Hollywood eventually made several good movies about the blacklist, but I would argue they were a solid 50 years after the country could have used them. So what hasn't changed in the 75 years since the Hollywood 10 hearings? The anti-leftist sentiment and the incredibly childish banding about of terms like communist and socialist by mental midgets who were likely getting baked behind the gym when they should have been in civics class is Exhibit A. It's the battle cry of the right wing today, just like it was in 1947 and 1952. They got nothing else. Hollywood to this day remains the poster child for the easy path and recycling the simple rather than producing challenging scripts. The big studios may have different forms, they may belong to corporate conglomerates now, but honestly that just makes them more conservative than ever. Hollywood is not a place where people take chances. I've pitched TV shows, trust me. The only thing they understand in those meetings is when you tell them something like, it's Gilligan's Island meets Six Feet Under. There are some exceptions, of course, but those are never the movies the studios support with a big media blitz. And in TV, forget about it. They want the familiar, the same old tired pablum. And that is why 20 years from now, you'll probably see Vin Diesel racing a mobility scooter as the star of Incontinent and Furious. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.